Psalm 73, it says this. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for the truths of your word, God. I just pray this morning that you would just open our hearts and minds to the revealed word that you have so graciously given us in this text. And I pray that you would just challenge us, convict us, and lead, guide, and direct us in all things. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' holy name. So this morning, church, as we continue this, uh, this summer series that we've started called The In-Between, Trusting God in Times of Waiting, you know, we've, I think where we read this, and we'll just kind of get right into it this morning, but where we read this, we see a psalmist, it's not David, it's a different psalmist whose name is Asaph, and he was uh, responsible for a lot of the worship, a lot of the communication of that time, and, and in regards to the fellowship of believers And so this is a man who would have had a lot of experience in the congregation of God's people, praising God, acknowledging God for who he is and what he does. And so he he begins to kind of present a situation that I don't believe is very foreign to us in that it is a time of waiting whereas if we navigate our own life, especially as Christians, trying to follow through and follow God in the life he's called us to, trying to do the right thing, trying to be the right people, trying to live the right way. And then we have this external perspective of the world around us, specifically when we look at, and even as Garen was talking, you know, when we, this morning, when we look around and we see the wickedness and the hurt and the injustice and, and the, the, the struggle and the, the hatred and the, the fighting and, and all the things around us and the wickedness around us, you know, and, and not only that, but then we see in the context of that the prosperity of our world, of those who, who are against God, who are in the entertainment world, maybe in the sports world, things like that, that they obviously seem as if they're accomplishing it, right? And as far as this world's perspective and as far as kind of the, the way at which we navigate the physical world, they, they do have it. They have a lot. They have it all. They have, you know, uh, health, wealth, and prosperity, it seems as if, right? They have everything that they could possibly want that this world could possibly offer, and they're wicked. Like they, and when we talk about the wicked, we're speaking of those who are in opposition to God. And we'll kind of see that as we kind of navigate some of the text. But so we see this Asaph. He's writing this psalm, which is a prayer or even a song. These psalms are meant to be sung. So, you know, we sing the songs we sing today are are, are not quite as honest, right, sometimes. They're not quite as uh, forward as these psalms, which I appreciate so much about what the Bible gives us in these psalms. And so whenever he approaches this, when Asaph approaches this, he, he immediately presents the idea. And I love where Asaph starts. Is the first thing he says is, truly God is good to Israel. I love that. I love that even though we know and he knows that he's about to be very honest, very vulnerable, very, uh, very observant of the world around him, he begins in this place where he says, truly, and there's this affirmation in that word. Uh, there's three times that this word is mentioned. One time it's not translated, but t- twice it is, where it says truly. And it's this strong affirmation about 
who God is and what God does. And so right here he says, truly God is good to Israel. And so for us, when we read truly God is good to Israel, what he's telling us, what he's setting us up for is to understand this. Truly God is good to his church. Truly God is good to his people. And I love that he begins with this, and in a lot of ways he ends with this same mindset. He's wanting us to enter into a perspective. Because that's what a lot of this psalm is about. It's about perspective on what is and what will be. And so he begins this psalm and he says, Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart, or those who are seeking after God, those who want what God has, those who are leaning into a relationship with the holy God, those who are pure at heart, those who are the church. He says, truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. And then he continues on, and then there's a confession. He says, but as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. He says, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious. And so Asaph is very honest here. As he's navigating this space in his, in his walk and, and, and following after God, the holy God of Israel, he says, listen, God is good. God is so good. He says, but I almost messed up. He says, says, I almost crashed and burned. And this is why. He said, I had envy. I wanted something. I wanted something outside of what God was giving me. I wanted something bigger. I wanted something better. I wanted something grander. You know, and what I, I really believe what Asaph is presenting to us here is he's presenting us this idea of how we navigate a time of waiting in between blessings. Like how we navigate a time of waiting in the midst of a Christian walk as we're trying to be the Christians God has called us to be and as we observe the world around us and maybe even the world coming in all around us, how do we navigate that time of waiting? So how do we navigate waiting in between blessings? Because in the midst of that, and we've talked about this a little bit before, a lot of our issue, a lot of our problem in the waiting is our impatience. And so he says that his problem was what caused him to slip, what caused him to, to, to almost stumble, is he said, I was envious. Well, what was he envious of? He says he was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of those who thought that they were at the center of the universe, who were confident who were prideful. I was envious of them. Why? And he says, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so listen, in those times of waiting, in between the blessings of God, you know, as a Christian, we navigate a lot of, a lot of really cool moments. You know, this past week uh, was one of the best weeks I've had in a while. And I, I needed this past week being with the, the teens at, at camp. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being there with, the, with, with our leaders, Josh and Nia. And I, and I enjoyed having the leaders comp, Penny and, and Ron and, and Brandy came down and spent time with us too. And then even getting to know the leaders from other churches. You know, you just go and you worship, you have a good time. And I needed that. And so that time was a blessing for me. But to be honest, that I haven't had... Besides that moment, you know, just in the busyness of life and the things we're doing, like sometimes we don't experience those moments like that on a consistent basis. Sometimes there's space in between these blessings of experience of the outpouring of God or these blessings and experience of how we navigate relationships or how we give or how we do. And so a lot of times we kind of have lulls in between these times that these ebbs and flows of life and especially in our Christian life. And so, you know, Asaph being the worship leader for the 
children of Israel. He's one of the people that David has given a responsibility to do these things. You know, he's obviously had some amazing moments with Israel, worshiping and, and just experiencing the holiness of God. And so he's, he's being very vulnerable in this moment when he says, listen, I was envious. I was envious of the prideful, of the, 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 these seemingly confident, arrogant individuals, these people. Why? Because they had a prosperity about them. They seemed like they were accomplishing it all. Like they seemed like they had everything that they needed. They had the money. They had the social status. They had uh, the friends. They had the people. Whatever it might be, he doesn't specify what prosperity they had here. He kind of lays out some things as we move further down. But what he's telling us is that he had a perspective that at a time got off of God and got off of what God was doing, got off of how God was blessing, and he started to look around him and he started to get a little drawn away and started to want some of that. And I, and I think it's very relatable to us at certain times in our life because especially in the culture that we live in, that's a culture of materialism and, and encourages us to constantly replace and, 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 and get something new and have something new and want something new and to have more and to be more and not only to be more but to be more than they are to have more than they have and so we're in this constant consumeristic mindset where we're just grabbing and reaching for and pulling in where for us in the waiting in between the blessings of contentment that God gives us that we navigate these spaces where we look around and we think man I mean are they doing something right like what why why do they seem so successful why are they so accomplished like why do they feel like they're getting everything and 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 they could they're they're not they're not representing the lord either that or they're not even they don't care about him they don't believe in him they're pushing back against him they're hateful they're wicked they're evil whatever it might be sometimes our perspective gets off in the midst of the waiting in between blessings and we see man What's going on? And that's where Asaph is, the worship leader of God's church. He says, listen, I, I had a time where my focus was outside. And so what he presents is he presents kind of a level of doubt and skepticism about his place and his actions and what he has been doing and what he does for the Lord. Because what he wanted, he was envious of their prosperity, their confidence and their accomplishments. And so what was he seeing from them? And we'll kind of move through this. I know when you think about the idea of us going through 28 verses, you think we'll be here till next Sunday, but I promise you we'll move through it pretty quick. So he continues on and he says in verse 4, he says, For they have no pangs or no pain. They're painless until death. They seem as if they're comfortable. They're not suffering. It says their bodies are fat and sleek, which is a representation of wealthiness, and they're without need. He says, they are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, like there's, we have a perspective. When we see people, see people on TV, we see athletes, when we view them, sometimes, I, I mean, if we're honest, like we think to ourselves like, man, they've, they've got it, right? Like they've got it made. They've got everything physically within this world that it seems as if one could get. And for them, it seems like it comes so easy. Like the accomplishments, the success, the notoriety, the status, like they have that. You know, and I think for a lot of us in our Christian life, whether it's that specifically or whether it's just not finding this place of contentment with the Lord, that it's so easy. And we see this. We see this happen 
in, in our personal life. We see it happen in relationships. We see it happen in, in our workplace, like with our, with our careers. Like we get, we miss and we don't focus in on what God has given. We lose sight of the godly contentment he's called us to and then we start to look for more, right? And the example of more that we typically find is the example of the wicked or the world, those who, who are in opposition to God or aren't representative, aren't representative of God's kingdom. And so then we look to that and we see their success, we see what they're doing, we see how they're accomplishing, how they seem to be finding joy, how they seem to be finding fulfillment, how they seem to be finding value, and then we have convinced ourselves that that's the direction I need to go to find that. Like, they're happy, they have it together, they seem painless, they don't seem to be experiencing the troubles that we experience, so I obviously need to gravitate towards a life like that. Like, how do I get that? And so these first, first 12 verses really are Asaph communicating a crisis, a crisis of faith, which for us, we, we kind of tremble. And when we think about that, like, oh, you're not supposed to, your faith isn't supposed to be shaken. Like, you're not supposed to doubt. You're not supposed to be skeptical. But this is the worship leader of the church communicating a space of vulnerable doubt. And so these first 12 verses, he does this. He says in verse 6, he says, Therefore pride is their necklace, right? And so that goes along with the arrogance. Like they've got it all together. They're at the center of the universe. And violence covers them as a garment. This word violence can also be translated as injustice or exploitation. Because ultimately pride is going to lead us. When we are at the center of our universe, pride will lead us to number one, either injustice, or number two, it will lead us to spaces of exploitation. Because if we are at the center of our universe, we will have to use people to satisfy our needs or our urges or our desire for notoriety. Like we will have to, you, we will have to utilize other people. Otherwise, they will be above us in our mind and we'll have to figure out a way to defeat them and to be above them, to make ourselves elevate ourselves. So he says, therefore, pride is their necklace and violence or exploitation covers them as a garment. In verse 7, he says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their souls, their, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And, and I think this is the most significant part because especially, you know, when, when we're navigating last week or this past week when we were talking with the teens and, and the last few nights especially in the last few days, we really hammered and talked about the Christian walk and salvation and what that looks like, what to expect. You know, wanting to be very honest with them. You know, I never want anybody to enter into a walk with Jesus without doing as the Bible tells us to do, to count the cost. And to count the cost is to consider how difficult the Christian life will be. Because, like he says here, he says, they scoff and speak with malice. They, and when he says this, he's speak, talking about them speaking openly against God and against God's people. In verse... In, in, he continues on in verse 9, he says, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. And another way this phrase could be said is that their message is heard everywhere. Isn't this so much about where we are? I mean, this is where we are right now, right? What is the, the overarching, what is the message, what is the, the communication that echoes through our world? It's that Christianity is outdated, that the Bible is a book of fantasies and that Christians are bigots, right? Like they are hateful, ugly, 
bigoted, bigoted people who don't want good for anybody and just want to push their own agenda, that the Christianity was created by man to rule over women, that it was created by a white man to, over, to rule over every other nationality in the world. Like That is the message that is being presented to the masses. That is the, the echo around the earth. Right now, and so he says, he, he's, spe- he's speaking directly into the space in which we live right now. Listen, their mouths will be set against heaven and they will go throughout the entire earth because they will be spreading these lies and deception everywhere. And we know that it's deception because then in verse 10 he says, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. He tells us right there in that verse that, they find no fault in their deceit. There's deception. They believe it. They believe the message going around. They believe all the things that they're saying, the scoffs and the malice. The, when it says malice, it means ugly intent, intent to hurt, intent to damage, intent to cause harm. It says they scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And so Asaph is seeing this play out from a, a, a very relatable experience for us we can see these things we hear these things we see the message going around we see we see the message against the god of the bible going around we see the message even among so-called christian churches going against the biblical jesus going against the biblical mandate for 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 marriage and gender and all these things we see the, the the world pressing in against the biblical mandate for what god has presented and what god has communicated in his revealed word and many of us within the church and with even outside of the church are deceived by the message to the point where they go back to it and they find no fault in it well, it doesn't seem that bad, right? It doesn't seem that off, which in reality, and we've talked about this before, the message that the enemy uses is also always a perverted message of truth. It's not the exact truth that God presents. It's a twisted version of the truth that God presents. So it's always sprinkled with a little bit of truth, but changed to not point to Christ, but typically to point back to us, to ourselves, wearing pride as a necklace, us being at the center of the universe, and then when we see all that go on, and, and so Asaph is saying, listen, there's this message that's ringing out through the earth, that their mouths are, are set against heaven. The message is ringing out through the earth. The people hear it and they're deceived. They find no fault in it. And then he continues on and he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Listen, and so this is, the, this is the, the message, is that things are bad, people hurt, things happen, and then like the communication, the, the, where it all kind of comes to a head in the world's fight against God is where is your God? All this is going on. This seems to be the, the overwhelming kind of accepted message that is not for God, that is against God. And not only that, not only are the masses pressing back against God, but then he also says that, you know, how can God know? And so this is where it always comes to, and not only in regards to the masses being pressed against him, but also when people look at the world and, and you know, think about the hurting and the dying 
you know, when, when bad things happen, you know, what is the question from the unbelieving world? If God is so good, why would he let that happen? You know, if God is so good, why does he, why does he not intervene? You know, where is your God? What does God know? Why is God not involved? And so what it does is it begins to con constantly communicate this message as if, number one, either God doesn't exist, or number two, that your God does exist, but he does not care about you. He has left you. You know, this is, that's that kind of agnostic mindset where, where it's this belief that, that there is a God that exists, but that God does not exist to be involved with us. And so he says, you know, behold, in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked always at ease and they increase in riches. And so he has this perspective. He's in the waiting in between blessings right here, and he's thinking to himself. He's looking at this, and he says, listen, they just seem like they have it all together. Like, what is going on? Like, I'm, and, and he says right after this in verse, in verse 13, he kind of comes to this point where he verbalizes an attitude of discouragement, which I, I truly believe, if we're really honest with ourselves in our Christian walk, when we're trying to live according to God's calling for our lives, we find ourselves in these same spaces. Like, we've poured out, we pour out, we pour out, and then we kind of hit these brick walls. And he says here in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. He says, listen, I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried to keep my hands clean, my heart clean. I've I've, I've leaned into what God has for me. I've tried to do the things that God has for me, but I, I've, I don't feel like I'm accomplishing physically what I need to. I don't feel as satisfied. And then I'll look out at the wicked and they're comfortable. They're resting. They seem at ease. They seem to have it all. They seem to have it all together. They seem to be the masses. They seem to be what, what the, the masses are following. And, and I feel like an outsider. I feel disconnected from, from most of the people that I engage with. Like what is going on? Like I just feel like it's all for nothing. And that would seem blasphemous. But as the worship leader of God's people communicate this to us. He wants us to understand there's some beauty in that vulnerability as we come before a holy God and we say, God, I don't understand what's going on. I'm being drawn to this. I'm seeing this and it's not making sense to me. He says in verse 14, he says, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, listen, I've tried to live the Christian life and I've been rebuked for it. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm getting backlash for my faith. I'm getting, I'm getting hardships because of what I believe and how I choose and, and how I follow it. Asaph is saying I, I'm, I'm experiencing issues. I'm, spirit, I'm experiencing problems in the world that I live in. He says I'm being, feeling rebuked every morning. You know, I just imagine him. I, I don't know what they did in the mornings, but, you know, it's, I just imagine Asaph going to the local coffee shop. I doubt they drank coffee, whatever they did. And he's hanging out and he's kind of doing whatever men and old men did in that time, wherever they went and gathered the Brookshire's breakfast of this day and age, you know, wherever they are, McDonald's, whatever. You know, like he's going and he's talking about his faith and, and the people around him are like, that's crazy. Like, dude, I'm, I'm rolling in it. Like, I've got everything I could ever want. And look at you. Look at you leading songs for these people, worshiping this imaginary being in the sky. I've seen you struggle. I've seen you be sick. I've seen people turn away from you. Like, you must be doing something wrong, brother, because I'm, I'm living it up over here. 
So he says, he says, listen, I'm, I'm feeling rebuked. I'm being pressed back against in my life. And then in verse 15, I think this is really important. Because if you didn't know, there's a particular posture that us as Christians that we are responsible to have. And what this is, is this is not me saying that we shouldn't be honest about our struggles and our doubts. Because this this passage speaks completely opposite of that. But there is a posture and a way at which we navigate it. And so in verse 15, he says this. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus... He says, if I would have communicated this to the world around me, the people I'm engaging with, if I would have presented this, he said, I would have betrayed the generation of children. So what is he saying? He says here that he, he didn't speak it publicly. Like his, 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 his dissatisfaction, his discouragement, his doubts, his skepticism, his struggles. You know, and, and I think this is tough for Christians because a lot of times as Christians, we walk around this world that is wicked and that is pressing in around us. We walk around it discouraged. And not only that, but we walk around it in the way we represent ourselves is we represent ourselves in a very unhappy manner, like as if we have lost joy, that our life lives and that we look as if we don't believe in the God that we say that we believe and that as if we are living in defeat. And so he says here, he says, I didn't speak it publicly because I knew that it would cause a generation of believers to struggle and to doubt. See, for us as Christians, we have a responsibility in a way that we carry ourselves not to be fake. But as we'll read in a minute, that there's a specific way that we deal with things, that God has invited us into a specific way at which we deal with things and the thing that we can't do and this is the responsibility we have at work the, the responsibility our students have at school christian students the way the responsibility we have even among our family is that listen it doesn't mean that we don't navigate times of doubt and struggle it doesn't mean that we don't have times where we're afraid it doesn't mean that we don't have times where we're skeptical or we're discouraged about some things going on around us But what Asaph is saying here, he said, there's a way at which a Christian can carry themselves in the midst of that time that is counterproductive to the kingdom of God. You know, like, have you seen those people in churches that just look unhappy all the time? Are those people that, and and it may be you, but, you know, the people, you know, when you go out and you deal with people, and I'm not saying that you have to fake it. I'm not saying fake it. But if, if we don't find ourselves finding happiness and joy in the Lord to some degree that helps us navigate through times, especially when we're dealing with a generation of unbelievers, that helps us push past some of our own doubt and, and discouragement that we may be navigating, that it doesn't allow us to enter in and engage with the world while representing the joy of the Lord, then we need to evaluate. We need to evaluate how we're dealing with our discouragements. How are we dealing with our doubts? How are we dealing with our fears? Because he says here, that's a responsibility that we have to have as Christians. You know, our our communication should not be pointing to defeat. Our body language should not be pointing to defeat. Our relationships should not, the way we navigate those and live those out, should not communicate a culture of defeat. And so how do we deal with it? 
if we, if we find ourselves being kind of overwhelmed with doubt and discouragement in the midst of our faith, as we look around to the world around us and see prosperity to the wicked, you know, we, we see the, the liars and the cheaters of the political and social world just doing their thing, and they seem like they have it all together, and they seem like their agenda is being pushed, and that they're being the most accomplished, and that ours isn't. So, like, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate that discouragement while not representing a culture of defeat within ourselves and within our space. What does he say? In verse 16 and 17, he says this. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, and, and, and I think this is where we can find ourselves. Like, I, I want to understand it. I want to know how to deal with it. In the time of waiting, in between blessings, and, and the experiences God has for me, how do I understand this? He said it seemed to be a wearisome task. Like it seemed to be overwhelming. It seemed to be a lot of work. It seemed to be something that I, did, I don't know if I can accomplish. And so he says, very honestly, like when I looked at it, it seemed like too much. And I think that's a place that for a lot of us in our Christian life that we come to, we come to these spots where the work that Christ and God is inviting us to do to grow closer to him seems overwhelming. Right. Like when we think like, you know, when we think about man, I really need to I need to engage God better on a daily basis. Like I need to develop a better routine and rhythm in my life of devotion, of reading, of studying, of worshiping, of whatever it takes, of giving, of loving and leading, whatever it takes. You know, I, I need to do that. And so then we think about that. And then what do we do? A lot of times, especially if we're trying to create some rhythm of devotion, we think to ourselves, well, our, our week's pretty busy. Or, you know, by the time I get home, I'm usually pretty tired after I do this, 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 and this. Like, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. Like, I need to do it how long? I need to do it when? You know, like uh, when we're talking about giving or loving or, or serving our community, you know, it's like we, like, oh, I just don't know if I can make time for that. Like, that seems like a lot. Like, I don't know if they, you know, this, you know, so we go, we go through our mind and we, we're very good at thinking about, and in reality, we, it's, it's just natural for us to think about the wearisome task of doing what we know we should do. And so Asaph says, listen, it, it seemed as if it was a wearisome task. Like, it seemed like a lot. So it, it's natural for us to come to those spaces. So how do we react and respond in that? Well, in verse 17, he says this. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. He w began to seek understanding from God's perspective. And what he shows us is that assurance is found with the fellow assurance is found in fellowship with God. Assurance is found with in fellowship with God. And so he says here, he says, listen, I wanted to understand this. It seemed like a pretty significant task. And so I went into the sanctuary of God. And so I think there's two significant things here for us to talk about, two big things. Number one is that he approached God. He went to God. And so if we have discouragement, if we have doubts, if we have issues, if we have struggles, God doesn't tell us to bury those things away and to kind of tuck them into this closet in the back corner of our mind and our heart and act like they're not there. You know, even though he calls us, he says, look, I didn't communicate it publicly. I didn't discourage a whole generation of people because of my own doubts. Even though he doesn't want us to do that, he, he tells us, he says, I'm not telling you to hide it away and never face it. He says, but there's a place at which we bring it. You bring those doubts and those fears and those struggles before a bunch of group of people who don't know how to navigate life either. What's going to happen to them? 
They're going to get discouraged. They're going to have doubts. They're going to have struggles that they don't understand. You know, it's like somebody bringing me something and telling me, hey, I don't know how to build this, but Jake, can you build it? I'm like, bro, I don't know how to build it. So then it's like, then, then none of us know what to do. Now I'm discouraged because now I can't help you and now we can't accomplish this task. So there's all these things that go into it like that. So he says, listen, if you have these, don't go publicly and bring it to the generation around you. He says, come to me. Come to God. Bring that to me. That's the beautiful thing. And a problem sometimes within the context of church is that we communicate this idea that if you have doubts or if your faith lacks or you're struggling, then the church, then then you shouldn't have that. You need to get rid of that. But man, God says bring that. Asaph, Asaph was struggling. Asaph was skeptical. And God said bring it. Because why? If we're going to find answers to eternal questions, we should be going to the eternal God. And not only that, but there's something else this communicates. The sanctuary of God is the fellowship of believers. Listen, this meeting that we do week after week is a unique experience in human history. This is a group of people who come together for one purpose from different backgrounds, different experiences, different likes, different dislikes, come together under the banner of one God for one purpose, to have, and, and ultimately to have one experience, and that experience being Jesus and his leading. Now listen, we're all unique in how we serve and navigate that, but ultimately we're all leaning into the same purpose of life. It's to know God and to make Him known, right? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to, and to enjoy Him forever. And so there's beauty and benefit to this gathering. It's so much more than just a religious activity. Like this is the gathering of God's people in the presence. We are literally standing in the presence of that God, the Bible tells us. Right now, He is present with us. And so what better place to to struggle than with a fellowship of believers who are struggling too. Listen, there is no podcast, no YouTube, no Facebook Live worship service that can replace gathering together with God's people. Nothing can change that. No, and listen, and, and the beautiful thing about it is it's so imperfect. It's so jacked up. Like we're so messed up in so many ways. But the beautiful thing about it is that God collects all these messed up people all together. And then we worship God and we thank him that even though we're messed up, God, you are beautiful and you are glorious and you are mighty. And in that we find victory and we find reason to carry on. And so he says... There's our, our third and last truly in verse 18. He says, truly, he begins to get a perspective on an already but not yet of the wicked. So the already but not yet of a believer is like we're already saved, but we're moving towards something more glorious. The already but not yet of the wicked is, that, is the opposite of that, is that they're experiencing their greatest joy now on earth. Right? The most accomplishment the most glory, the most worth, the most stuff that they'll ever experience will be in the 65, 75 to 80 years of life that they live on this earth. But then at the end of that, there will be nothing. For the Christian, we believe that their sacrifice now 
but there's things that we neglect ourselves now to experience a greater glory for eternity, forever and ever on ever and ever. You know, and that's the thing is for Asaph, he says, you know, God helped him see that the world I live in and the good I experience here is momentary good. It's, it's not going to last. Any notoriety, any social status, any accomplishment, it's not going to last. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like I, You hear the, the quickness of that, a moment. They're swept away. Like there's so much, uh, there's such a lack of confidence, true confidence in what those things and what that world gives. He says it sweeps them away in a moment. It's done. It's changed. Like there's no foundation there. It's so shaky. It's so broken. And even though they may live their entire lives standing on this foundation of their wealth and their health and their prosperity, that at the end of, the, at the end of their life, that the, the level playing field of humanity is that we will all die. We, the life will end at some point. That levels the playing field of Christian and non-Christian, but the difference is, is how those moments carry on, be, carry on beyond that. When this life, physical life, ceases to exist, what foundation do we stand on? And as a Christian, your foundation is an eternal foundation that never lets go, that never slips away, that never falls out from under you, and that even when you fall, the Bible says the righteous will stumble seven times, but they will get back up. Why? Because we're not catching ourselves. The God of the universe is catching us. And so he says... And I love this. In verse 20, he says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Like they're so, like you can just hear the lack of substance, right? It's like it's, it's a dream. The life they're living literally is a dream. It's like the matrix. Like they're just plugged in to something that is not real. He says, yes, they'll, they're, they're, they're convinced within their mind that they're happy and that they're finding satisfaction. But in reality, all of their seeking, all of their searching is just finding themselves at, at an end. Like because they're, they're, they're wanting the next thing. I mean, you see it. You see it and hear it play out all the time. The people who have accomplished the most, what do they feel like? There's still more to accomplish. There's still more to be won. There's still more to be earned. There's still more to be gained. Like it's never enough because it's... Like he says here, he says it's like a dream. It's like phantoms. It's like they're, they're, they're empty. They're, they're translucent. There's no substance. And he says, and I love this, he says, When my soul was embittered, or when my soul was bitter, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I love that he says that. He says, listen, I, God, I was living by my feelings. I was living by instincts like an animal. And listen, a lot of times when we find ourselves in discouragement, we can be find ourselves driven by feelings and emotions and instincts. And our instincts typically don't lead us in the right directions. And so then he says this, and we'll end here. Verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And then he begins to say this, You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. And I love this in verse 25. It's very reflective of what Peter says in John 6. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. He says, listen, 
God, what, what else is there but you? And this is the place that we, when we pursue God, when we understand what he does, the nearness of God. I love that. He says, you hold my right hand. Like that is, that is such a significant communication of nearness. And the fact that he grabs, you know, that the right hand was a hand of strength. And, and, and you know, anytime it did anything, it was like the priority, the, the leader. And so we're basically, he says that you're leading me. You're grabbing me on, on my strong side. Like, and you're, 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 you're the one that's guiding, not me. And so he says, he says, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and you will receive me. He says, you, will, you hold me, you guide me, and you will receive me. There's a confidence there because of the nearness of God. He said there's a confidence there to carry on. And then he says this, verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail. And I love that. The honesty there, the realization. And this is, this is where we have to be as Christians, to find ourselves in, con- in a constant state of dependence on our holy God. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion or my allotment, what has been given, set aside for me, my provision forever. We don't have to live unsure about where we stand with the Holy God. The, the thing that is sure is what he says here in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. That's sure. But there's confidence in the fact that God is strength. Strength of my heart and the strength of my allotment or provision forever. It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but put it, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, and this is, this is where our prayer has to be, as the, as the worship team comes up, and, and we're going to end with the Lord's Supper as we worship this morning too, but he says, But for me, the prayer of my heart, the prayer that I want to live, the prayer that I want to lead. He says, but for me, it is good to be near to God. Church, it's the nearness of Christ that helps give us perspective on navigating the waiting in between blessings, in between experiences, in between where we are and where we want to be. He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. And I think this is where, this is how we deal with our doubts and our fears and our struggles, is that God has to be at that place of our retreat center, right? He's the place we go back to. He's the place that we run to whenever we're struggling, whenever we're unsure, whenever we're not seeing the world for what it is he has, for for, for what he's really wanting us to see. He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge for a reason. And this is what he says. And then we'll end here. He says, that I may tell all of your works. This is the reason, not just for our own comfort, but for the fact that we can step out in confidence and be able to tell the world around us that's in desperate need of Jesus, his words. You know what we saw? One of the things we talked about as leaders, as you sit in camp and you see these teens and you see them interact and you see them in worship, you know, many of them are just plugged in and engaged. And many of them, you know, they don't care as much and they're not quite as plugged into it. But the thing, because God's word does not return void, thing that you could you could see if you looked out over the crowd after the reading of God's word like you when you tangibly see the brokenness and 
you see God working and you see that that love you know the I truly believe many, most of the time that those tears that are welling up or that, that emotion that's welling up is the Lord, is the Lord bringing forth a need. You have need, and that need is me, and I satisfy that need. Jesus is that for us. Jesus has offered that to us, that we can live in the confidence that we have in him and what he's done, and that we can live that out not only for our own good, but for the good of others so that we can tell that same confidence. Because Asaph says that knowing that there's others who are going to have the same perspective, the same struggle, the same doubts, the same fears, the same skepticism. And he says, I don't want to complain to them about what I don't, want to, what I don't understand, but I want to share with them what I do know. And he says, what I do know, I know because I'm near to the Lord. And so for all of us, this is the, the, the space at which we have to navigate. If we want answers in the waiting, we're not going to find those answers anywhere else except in the presence of God, in our day-to-day, in how we engage, in how we worship, and how we devote our time and our efforts and our minds and our hearts. Like in the midst of that, that's where we'll find our answers. That's where we'll find our perspective. That's where we'll find what we need to tell the world around us that's in desperate need of a Savior. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been wanting to implement for a long time is, is a consistent Lord's Supper. And, and, you know, this is, for me, as I was preaching, you know, thinking about this, I thought to myself, this is, this is the best place to do it. Because the reason we take the Lord's Supper is to remember as a Christian, this is a, something that Christians do. The reason we do this is we do this to remember Him. Remember not only what He has done, His body broken, His blood spilled, but also when we ingest him, we're reminding ourselves that we are one with him, that he carries us, that, that we, we are held in the hand of the creator because of what Jesus has done. And so I'm just going to read a couple things. As the guys that I've asked, if you guys wouldn't mind coming up and uh, helping me start to pass these out. We'll use this time as a time of reflection and also a time to celebrate and participate in the Lord's Supper. Thank you. But one of the things that it requires of us to do is a time of reflection and examination. And, and I would say this just again, that that for the Lord's Supper is something that believers partake in because we believe that we are one with Christ. And so, you know, don't, don't feel ashamed to let it pass if it's not, not for you, if, if you're just not at that place with the Lord. But before we take, as Christians, one of the things that we have to do is we have to examine. In verse 28, he says, Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of, of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so what God is inviting us to do, what we'll do right now while you're sitting where you're sitting, is just to take a few moments and to reflect, maybe to confess, maybe to, to have a moment of worship and, and, and engagement with God to say who he is, what he's done, and what he's offering. And, may, and like I said, maybe, it, and, and for a lot of us, and we need to, it, it's confession, it's repentance. God, forgive me. Forgive me for ever thinking that I could live life or do life with anyone or anything but you. 
And so take the next minute or two, and let's have a moment of reflection before we move on and partake of the Lord's Supper together. Let's take a moment. Scripture says this, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, let's take of the bread. after the fact. Probably should have mentioned that in the beginning, but it does disconnect from the top, and then the bottom one is a separate tab. So. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, take of the cup and drink. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, we partake of the Lord's Supper to celebrate his goodness and his glory and what he does and what he will do. And so this morning, I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to worship as we end this morning. But I encourage you to respond and react in response in the way that the Lord would have you lead. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's confession. Maybe it's celebration. Maybe it's you know, repentance, maybe it's seeking after salvation and rescue this morning. The Bible tells us that he invites us to come, that the hope and joy that we need and that we find in Christ Jesus is available to us. So church, let us, let us pray as we worship this morning. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for this time you've given us to join together and worship you. Lord, I thank you that in our time of waiting, in our time of wandering, God, that you offer us a confident hope in your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not live a single day, Lord, without resting in and celebrating in that goodness, that confidence that we can have, that no matter what the, the landscape of the world around us is, Lord, that we can be confident in the hope and victory that you have sealed in the death of your son Jesus on the cross for us. Lord, you've offered us hope and life. Lord, I pray that we would live in it and receive it and accept it and enjoy it. God, in all that you give us, God, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name.